This is Space Time, Series 25, Episode 136, for broadcast on the 16th of December, 2022. Coming up on Space Time, what Earth's volcanic history can tell us about Venus, the European Space Agency's Moonlight Initiative, and two new rocky worlds discovered around an ultra-cool star. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study claims volcanic activity lasting hundreds of thousands of centuries and erupting massive amounts of material may have helped transform Venus from a warm, wet world like the Earth into the acidic hothouse it is today. The findings, reported in the Planetary Science Journal, suggest that by understanding the record of large igneous provinces on Earth, scientists can better understand if these events may have caused Venus's current environment to evolve. As well as being Earth's nearest planetary neighbour, Venus is considered to be Earth's sister planet. You see, they're both roughly the same size. They have a similar mass and diameter. They were formed under the same conditions, in the same part of the solar system, and out of the same materials. Scientists once thought Venus's dense cloud cover meant lots of rain. After all, it's closer to the sun than the Earth, so temperatures are hotter, and that could mean more water evaporation and hence more rain clouds. So scientists envisioned that under all those thick clouds, Earth's sister planet was covered in a lush tropical green rainforest. Think of the Amazon on steroids. However, once astronomers began sending spacecraft to Venus, they quickly discovered that it's actually the closest thing to hell in our solar system. Venus has a runaway greenhouse effect, and that's produced a world where surface temperatures average a scorchingly hot 462 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt lead. And the rain produced by the planet's thick shrouding cloud cover isn't water, but droplets of metal-eating sulfuric acid. The cloud cover is so heavy, it crushes Venus's carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere like the lid of a pressure cooker, giving the planet a surface pressure some 92 times greater than the average sea level surface pressure on Earth. Scientists have seen what looks like snow caps on some of Venus's taller mountain ranges, but that snow isn't frozen water, it's actually metallic. So, on Venus, you get to be crushed, roasted, burnt and broiled all at once. Not bad for a world named after the Roman goddess of love and beauty. Venus is also very weird compared to the Earth in other ways. For example, it rotates backwards compared to most other planets in the solar system. That means the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. And it rotates extremely slowly, a day on Venus lasting some 243 Earth days. In fact, a Venusian day is longer than a Venusian year. It takes Venus 224.7 Earth days to complete one orbit around the Sun. The surface of Venus is dominated by well over 1,600 volcanic structures. That's more than any other planet in the solar system. The study's lead author, Michael Way, from NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York, says the large igneous provinces seen on Venus are the products of periods of large-scale volcanism lasting tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. These massive fields of solidified volcanic rock cover some 80% of Venus's surface. 
Way estimates that volcanoes on Venus could have deposited more than 160,000 cubic kilometres of volcanic rock onto the planet's surface. That's enough molten material to bury the entire state of New South Wales or Texas almost a kilometre deep. And it's these massive volcanic outpourings which may have initiated Venus's current conditions sometime in its ancient history. In particular, the occurrence of several such mega-eruptions over a short period of geologic time, within say a million years, could have led to the runaway greenhouse effect which kicked off the planet's transition from warm and temperate to hot and dry. Way says while scientists aren't yet sure exactly how often the events which created these fields on Venus occurred, we should be able to narrow them down simply by studying Earth's own geological history. Not counting the current man-made one, life on Earth has endured at least five mass extinction events since the origin of multicellular life around 540 million years ago. And each of these wiped out more than 50% of all animal life across the planet. Now, according to this study and others before it, the majority of these extinction events were either caused by or accelerated by the kinds of eruptions which produce large igneous provinces like the Siberian and Deccan traps. In Earth's case, the climatic disruptions caused by these events weren't sufficient to cause a runaway greenhouse effect, as they were on Venus. But the reasons for that is something that Way and other scientists are still working to determine. NASA's next missions to Venus, which is scheduled to launch in the late 2020s, that's the Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases Chemistry and Imaging, or Da Vinci Mission, and the Venus Emissivity Radio Science Insar Topography and Spectroscopy, or Veritas Mission, aim to study the origin, history, and present state of Venus in unprecedented detail. Way says the primary goal of Da Vinci will be to narrow down the history of water on Venus and when it may have disappeared, providing more insight into how Venus's climate has changed over time. The Da Vinci mission will precede Veritas, an orbiter designed to investigate the surface and interior of Venus from high above in order to better understand its volcanic and volatile history and thus Venus's path to its current state. The data from both missions will help scientists narrow down the exact record of how Venus became transitioned from warm and temperate into dry and sweltering. It may also help scientists better understand how volcanism on Earth has affected life in the past and how it may continue to do so in the future. This is Space Time. Still to come, the European Space Agency's Moonlight Initiative and two new rocky worlds discovered around an ultra-cool star. All that and more coming up on Space Time. The European Space Agency has commenced development of the Moonlight Initiative, a new project designed to ultimately provide autonomous lunar communications and navigation services. You see, while the Artemis project aims at getting humans back to the Moon and eventually onto Mars and beyond, staying and operating on the lunar surface will require more infrastructure than just habitats and rovers. To achieve a permanent and sustainable presence on the Moon, reliable autonomous lunar communications and navigation systems will need to be deployed. Think of it as a sort of lunar version of GPS. As well as Artemis, dozens of other international, public and private missions are also setting their sights on the lunar surface in coming years. And so the European Space Agency is working on the Moonlight Initiative to become the first off-planet commercial telecommunications and satellite navigation provider. 
The initial plan will see the launch of three or four satellites into Earth orbit, but they'll be transported to lunar orbit by a space tug and deployed one by one to form a constellation of lunar satellites. The exact number and specifications of these spacecraft are currently being developed, but the aim is to provide both satellite navigation and high-speed data transmission services. Right now, it's thought the Constellation's orbits would be optimised to give the best coverage to the lunar south pole, where sustained sunlight and polar ice are making it the focus of upcoming missions. These would require highly eccentric orbits. The Moonlight Initiative would provide the capabilities necessary to serve planned and future missions with both a navigation service that enables accurate real-time positioning for all lunar missions and communications from the surface to the satellite and from there either to the Gateway Space Station or direct to Earth. This report from ESA TV. Going to the moon was the first step. Staying there is our next ambition with dozens of international public and private missions setting their sights on the lunar surface in the coming years. But the technologies we take for granted here on Earth, satellite navigation systems like Galileo or GPS, video calls, or even fast file transfer, are very limited on the moon. Since the Apollo program, very few lunar missions have managed to land successfully. We cannot have a sustainable lunar presence without reliable and autonomous communications and navigation. That's why ESA is working with its industrial partners on the Moonlight Initiative to become the first off-planet commercial telecoms and satellite navigation provider. Launched into space, three or four satellites are carried into the moon's orbit by a space tug and deployed one by one to form a constellation of lunar satellites. These relays connect to Earth via three dedicated ground stations, forging a data network that spans up to 400,000 kilometers. The constellation's orbits are optimized to give coverage to the lunar South Pole, whose sustained sunlight and polar ice make it the focus of upcoming missions. Moonlight will provide data capacities sufficient to serve these planned and future missions over the coming decades with a navigation service that enables accurate, real-time positioning for all lunar missions. The Argonaut, or any lunar lander, could greatly benefit from the Moonlight program. With a simplified navigational subsystem, our lander saves mass, reducing cost and enabling other equipment to be carried. Its position is tracked in orbit and descent with accuracy of just a few meters, sending real-time telemetry and video footage to Earth as it touches down safely in its target area. It completes health checks and deploys its payload. Whether that supplies for the moon base or a science mission, a rover connects to the moonlight network, either via the lander or directly to the constellation. Navigating autonomously, it saves huge operational costs, collecting lunar samples that can be brought safely back home again. The Moonlight system is designed to be scalable and adaptable. ESA is working closely with NASA on LunarNet, a new framework for lunar communication and navigation standards that ensures compatibility. So our global customer base can use the service for their own missions or deploy complementary technologies that could join and enhance the network. So perhaps before long, you could be using your roaming data allowance on the Moon. This is Space Time. Still to come, 
two new rocky worlds discovered around an ultra-cool star, and later in the science report, Washington warns that China's nuclear arsenal is likely to more than triple to around 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Astronomers have discovered two new super-Earth-type exoplanets, one of which is located in the host star's habitable zone, an area around the star where temperatures would allow liquid water, essential for life as we know it, to exist on the planet's surface. Most of the 5,000 or so exoplanets, all planetary candidates so far discovered, have been bad candidates for life. They're either scorchingly hot or freezingly cold, and the majority are gas giants. It turns out there are relatively few small terrestrial planetary discoveries, most likely because they're far more difficult to detect. The new discoveries reported in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics are orbiting a small cool star known as TOI 4306, located just 100 light-years from Earth. Astronomers first detected a planet orbiting around the star last year from NASA's Planet Hunting Test Space Telescope. TESS uses the transit method to detect a slight dimming in light coming from a star caused by an orbiting planet transiting or passing directly in front of the star as seen from Earth, thereby blocking out some of the star's light. Follow-up ground-based observations by the Speculus Consortium were then undertaken in order to confirm the test discovery, in the process finding a second more distant planet in the same data. The inner planet in the system, designated LP890-9b, is around 30% larger than Earth and rapidly orbits its host star in just 2.7 Earth days. The second planet, designated LP890-9c, is slightly larger, around 40% more massive than the Earth, and completes its orbit in some 8.5 Earth days. One of the study's authors, Robert Wells from the University of Bern, says the second planet receives about the same amount of stellar radiation from its host star as the Earth receives from the Sun, and therefore could potentially have liquid water on its surface. But then again, when you think about it, like the Earth, Venus and the Moon are also both in the Sun's habitable zone, yet neither could support life. The Venusian atmosphere is far too thick, composed of superheated carbon dioxide, while the Moon has virtually no atmosphere at all. So, while 9C is a tantalising prospect, it's best not to get our hopes up. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has confirmed that climate change has had a major impact on Tasmania's ocean ecosystems in recent years as a direct result of warming oceans. The findings, reported in the Journal of the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, looked at how fish, macroinvertebrates and algae populations have changed over the past 27 years across nearly 100 reef sites. The researchers say that these sites have seen an average of 0.8 degrees Celsius of warming in that time. The overall fish biomass has increased, microvertebrate populations and diversity have decreased, and algal cover has also decreased, especially over the last decade. 
What's basically happening is that as temperatures in the ocean around Tasmania increase, fish from further north migrate southwards, forcing many of the fish living in that area to move further south, often into areas that no longer offer habitation. And that leads to extinction. Scientists have created the smallest ever mobile life form. The origin of all biological movements, including walking, swimming or flying, can be traced back to cellular movements. However, little is known about how cell mobility arose in evolution. Now a report in the journal Science Advances describes a study which looked at seven proteins believed to be directly involved in allowing spiroplasma to swim and observing what happens when those bacteria are injected into a synthetic bacteria named SYNC3 through genetic engineering. SYNC3 was specifically designed and chemically synthesized to have the smallest genomic DNA possible, including the minimum essential genetic information required for growth from the smallest genomes of naturally occurring microplasma bacteria. The result of this new hybrid saw genetically re-engineered SYNC3 change from its normal spherical shape into a spiraling helix, which was able to swim by simply reversing the helix's direction, just like spiroplasma. Further investigation revealed that only two of these newly added proteins were actually required to make SYNC3 capable of minimal swimming. The result created the smallest mobile life form ever invented with the ability to move on its own. Researchers say it will advance science's understanding on the evolution and origins of cell mobility. A new Pentagon report warns that China's nuclear arsenal is likely to more than triple the 1,500 warheads by 2035. The study also pointed to the increasing sophistication of the country's air force. Washington's identified Beijing as the most consequential challenge to the free world today with programs to develop new nuclear warheads and delivery platforms that at least equal the effectiveness, reliability and or survivability of those under development by the United States. The report also warned that Beijing is working to modernise its ballistic missile arsenal, undertaking some 135 missile tests during 2021, which is more than the rest of the world combined, excluding those fighting conflicts. China already has the world's largest navy, with over 350 surface ships and submarines, and the third largest air force in the world, with over 2,800 aircraft. It's now developing new intercontinental ballistic missiles that will significantly improve its nuclear-capable missile forces. The report also takes aim in the way in which China's employing its military in the Asia-Pacific region, saying it's adopting more coercive and aggressive actions. The report also highlights how, over the last few years, China's naval vessels and aircraft have been exhibiting a sharp increase in both unsafe and unprofessional behaviour, actions which risk a major incident or accident occurring. And finally for this week, the problem with politicians is that they have horizons which only ever see to the next election, basing their actions on the latest polls and surveys rather than doing what's best for the nation in the long run. Now, fact-checkers have highlighted some of the problems these surveys entail. They looked at one which reveals that half of all respondents said they either regretted getting vaccinated against COVID-19 or were happy with the decision to remain unvaccinated. That poll showed that only 35% out of the more than 45,000 people who took part in the survey and were vaccinated would make the same decision again. 
Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptic says the problem is that online polls are notoriously unreliable because they're open to stuffing of the virtual ballot box. The surprising finding in this was a survey done by News.com, which is the Murdoch outlet, the online version, on people's attitudes towards vaccination, especially COVID-19 vaccination. Now, the surprising fact is that so many people were anti it, even down to the fact that I think it was 40-odd percent of people said they haven't been vaccinated, they haven't had any doses of a COVID-19 vaccine, which is interesting because the government figures actually looking at yeah, the number of people who actually done well, Yeah, well, it's actually more than that. It's about, about uh, 97% wow. of Australians aged 16 and over are vaccinated. So where there's 44% of people who claim they haven't been vaccinated, you think, hang on a second, probably the reason is the numbers they were looking at were a bit skewed. And basically this was an online survey done of so many people asking them for their attitudes towards vaccine. And it's the online equivalent of ballot box stuffing, right? So, yeah, so when you dig in into this uh, survey, what was the actual finding? Well, the actual finding was that basically the survey went out to a number of people and all the anti-vax groups around the world said, vote on this. So they swamped the survey with their responses, which was sort of from everywhere and highly skewed towards anti-vaxxers. It was a campaign done by the anti-vax groups. They saw this survey. They said, let's take advantage of it. Tell your mates, tell your friends everywhere throughout the world, go on to this survey and uh, uh, stuff the result which they did. So therefore, basically, what they find is that the survey... (laughs) Quite literally. What they found was that, therefore, this survey was absolutely useless. And it's a lesson about all online surveys. They can be easily manipulated by people who wanted to give a false impression. But they keep quoting online surveys, online surveys, and they're very hard to keep uh, accurate online surveys unless they're by invitation only. But in this case, it was open slather, and uh, they got slathered. Can we equate this to what we see with Twitter, where uh, the Twitterati are so one-sided in their condemnation of something. The politicians believe it, but it turns out most of the uh, condemnation is coming from bots. Yeah, because you know, if, if you have a site saying this is a, uh, a political party A site, you're not going to get people in favour of political party B, right? So if you look at one particular site and say these people are all in favour of whatever policy it is, therefore that must be the right way to go because there's such overwhelming support. No, if you, you go to a site that's dedicated to a particular cause, or in this case an audience which is dedicated, to a particular cause, you're going to get a skewed result. One example, just similar but not quite the same area, I know someone who scammed a online survey in which the prize was a TV for the winner. He sent out, I think, about a million entries. He just set up an algorithm or a little control on his uh, computer to just keep bombarding this survey with his results. And he won, of course, because he vastly outnumbered everybody else just by using computer technology to sort of manipulate the results. Now, that's a different area, but this is not computer technology, it's people technology. And people, voters, people, your surveys, whatever, totally changing what the results are in reality. And therefore, all these people who were saying they were anti-vaccine, they were sort of those people who said they regretted getting the vaccine, these 40-odd percent of people who said they'd never been vaccinated, which is obviously wrong um, as far as the general population goes, that instantly shows you that this survey was sus suspicious. And yet the newscom published it very happily, saying, look what this survey says, blah, blah, blah. And you think, but it's BS. And most online surveys, you've got to be very suspicious of, even sceptical, might I say. Like me, you live in an Australian state which is about to uh, have an election in the next three months. That means you're about to get bombarded by pollsters asking how you're going to vote on certain issues. Do you answer those honestly or do you always (laughs) give a phony answer? Uh, Yeah, I I tend to like to sort of uh, keep them on their toes in the same way as you have someone who phones you up offering some particular service on the phone and I like to keep them running for a while. I always get the ones about, oh, 
this is the security department of a particular credit card. We have this purchase on your card, you know, for so much dollars to this particular person. Did you, you know, purchase this thing? And of course, they expect you to say no and be outraged. They say, well, send us your credit card details and we'll change it, which is silly because they should know what your credit card details are. <laughs> but I will say yes. And you can hear the confusion on the other end. You know, it's like saying, yes, I did. I might have purchased that. And they go, Hang on, that's not the response they expected. Oh, no, what, you and then do they there, get, what you do there is you play the dottery old gentleman. Oh, yeah, well, that's what I do with your sort of your, computers. Yeah, yeah you'll we'll fix you, up your you computer. You online for 10 minutes or so. It's it's great. And then when they, by the time they finally twig as to what's happening, they really don't like you or your relatives anymore. <laughs> but of course, it keeps them away from someone else who might be exactly, more vulnerable. Yes. Yeah, I had someone, I went for about 20 minutes actually, interested oh, in their product and their service, and they got so excited that someone actually was. They went and got the manager to confirm it, and the manager got on the and I denied everything. <laughs> and I was like, what? I don't know about this. And you can almost see the manager staring at <laughs> Another good one is to simply ask the uh, telemarketer or whoever what they think of their manager and, you know, are they happy working there? And that's the job they've always wanted all their lives. Yeah, you, you try different things. James Randy used to have a wonderful thing. His answering machine on his phone was, yes, Randy, can you just hang on for a second? And that was the recording. <laughs> and then people are waiting for the beep. <laughs> and he had them waiting. I, I do the thing, so, oh, yeah, hang on a second, there's someone at the door. And then you hear the voice over the phone, hello, hello. That's always good. So there's all techniques. That's Tim Mendham from Australia. Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 